Welcome to Passion. For more information about Passion, please visit us online at www.passionchurch.tv. Now let's join the service already in progress. If you were here the last couple of weeks, you know the first round we dealt with was the cage of fear. And then last week, or uh, yeah, last week we dealt with on Easter, the cage of death. And then this week we start a kind of a little different deal. We start round three and round four. And in round three and round four, we're going to deal some, with some issues that I believe are some of the greatest traps, greatest cages that we face uh, in our daily walk with the Lord and uh, and just in life in general. And so I want us to deal with this. Uh, in cage fighting, I've kind of given you a little bit of information about cage fighting because I know some of you are, are rookies. You don't watch cage fighting that much. And so I'm kind of trying to clue you in a little bit. So let me just tell you that in cage fighting, there are basically three ways you can win. The first way you can win is to knock your opponent out. The good old boxing, you know, knock them down, knock them out. They get... They don't get the 10 count in this particular deal. The ref jumps in and stops it. The second way that you can win is you can submit somebody, and that just may, basically means you get them in a chokehold or uh, some kind of an arm bar or something, and, and for fear of safety, they stop the fight. And the way that you signify that is you tap out. So see, I just gave some of you some information. You wondered what all the tap out shirts were about. That means you quit. All right. The third way that you can win is you can win based upon the judge's scorecard. Most, round, most cage fights are three rounds long, and the judges grade you in each round based on a certain set of criteria, and I want to sh kind of share with you what they look for. They look for clean strikes. They look for effective grappling. They, they look for octagon control, and they look for effective aggressiveness. Now, there's one element of those things that they look for that pertains to what we're going to talk to a, bit, a little bit about today that I want to mention to you and kind of focus in on, and that is the concept of octagon control. And so when you start talking about uh, controlling the octagon, the judges look for some specific things. The, one of the things that they might look for is that a person who's a good striker, who's good with his fists or his feet, they, they see that. He's able to fend off a, a grappler or a wrestler's takedown attempt, and he's able to stay on his feet and keep, keep striking effectively. The second thing that uh, equates with octagon control is a wrestler or a grappler who can take down an effective striker and get him to the ground and control him there. 
The third element is that the fighter on the ground, or, or the fighter on the ground who creates uh, submission, or there's this term called a mount, where you get on top of them and they can't get up, or you get down and you've got clean striking from the bottom. But this is the one I want you to hear. Listen to this uh, definition of or concept of octagon control. Here it is. It says the fighter that dictates the pace, the place, and the position of the fight. Now, isn't that a pretty good definition of addiction? Addiction, when we have an addiction in our life, it dictates the pace of our life, the place of our life, and the position of our life. And so we've got to be aware of of becoming addicted to things. Now, I just want to say this to you. I've never heard anybody in church preach about addiction. I've never heard anybody even deal with the concept of addiction like we're going to deal with today. And it may seem odd to you that we would take the time in a church service on a Sunday morning to deal with the concept of addiction because aren't we supposed to be the free ones? Aren't we supposed to be the ones that have no chains? Aren't we supposed to be the ones that are walking around in total liberty and freedom? But the reality is, is that addiction is running rampant not only out there but inside the church. We find so many folks that are addicted. And I found some statistics that I think are interesting because we, we are naive enough to believe that these, these uh, statistics only deal with people that don't know Jesus when we've, we're discovering that the reality is, is that the same statistics that hold true out there a lot of times, unfortunately, hold true within the church as well. For instance, in the United States of America, did you know that two million, there are 2 million compulsive gamblers? who just can't stop gambling. There, there are 16 million people with compulsive sexual behaviors. Think about that a moment. 16 million people addicted to some kind of sexual behavior that is viewed by society as uh, destructive. Then we find out there are 4 million binge eaters that deal with their self-esteem issues by eating on a binge. There are 1 out of 20 people are addicted to drugs. Think about that for a second. 1 out of 20 Then we find out that one out of four men are addicted to tobacco. Whether they're dipping it or smoking it, one out of four men. One out of six women are addicted to tobacco. Then I found out this, that one out of 14 abuse or are dependent on alcohol. And you're sitting there going, well, what does this have to do with me? Just hang on. Because I found out that four out of five people use caffeine. It's a drug, by the way. And half of those four... I think half of four is two. I'm not the greatest mathematician, but that one's not hard to figure out. Half of those four use caffeine excessively. They can't get through the day without their Dr. Pepper, Mountain Dew, Starbucks, whatever gets you going. And then I also find out this one. This one will really really hit you. One out of 20 compulsively shop. They can't stop. Yeah, I know. We're trying to deal with it. We're, We're trying, you know. But they can't. They, they, they find themselves in debt. They can't make the payments on the credit card, but something in them says that when I go shopping, I'll feel better. And so we find out that the cage of addiction is not limited by race, it's not limited by gender, and it's not limited or restricted by religion. And so we need to talk about that because I believe that some of the most addicted people in the world attend church on a regular basis because we're looking for answers and we're trying to... to 
find out how we can stop. See, addiction is defined as this. Addiction is defined as being unable to stop even when you want to, even though you recognize the negative impact something has on your life. If you can't stop, even though you know what's hurting you, you're addicted. So I just think that Paul, in his discourse in uh, Romans, probably had the greatest uh, picture, word picture, if you will, of addiction. Because in Romans chapter 7, I know he's not dealing with the concept of addiction. He's dealing with our sinful nature. But when you read what he writes, it makes you think, man, that he understood addiction. Because in Romans chapter 7, verses 15 through 24, it says this. What I don't understand about my, myself is that I decide one way, but then I act another. Doing things I absolutely despise. So if I can't be trusted to figure out what is best for myself and then do it, it becomes obvious that God's command is necessary. But I need something more. For if I know the law but still can't keep it, and if the power of sin within me keeps me sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. Doesn't that sound like an addiction to you? Then he says, I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to be bad, but then I do it anyway. My decision, decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Parts of me covertly rebel, and just when I least expect it, they take charge. I've tried everything, and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? Haven't you ever met anybody that couldn't stop doing something, even though in, their, in their, their mind, in their heart, they would say to you, I want to stop. I don't want to go through the drive-thru at Starbucks. I don't want to go buy the tobacco. I don't want to drink 900 Dr. Peppers today. I don't want to overeat today. And yet, when they sit down, they can't stop. Addiction is unlimited in its reach in that I have discovered that no family is off limits. You realize that addiction knows no barrier. Your family is not safeguarded against addiction just because you you pray about it and say well, hope for the best and hope that addiction will never come to my house. I got news for you. No family's off limits. My family has been impacted by addiction. Uh, th this is going to sound trivial, but it's still the truth. And I, and the truth is, I'm a recovering addict. And I know this is going to sound trivial, but I was without a doubt addicted to Mountain Dew. No doubt about it. I, I, there's, a, there's a rap song by KJ52. I know most of you don't know who he is, a Christian rapper, but he's got a song called Addicted to Mountain Dew. I was bona fide addicted to Mountain Dew. When the first thing you do in the morning when you get up out of bed is walk to the kitchen and get a Mountain Dew and drink the whole thing, and then you drink them all day long, including the five or six refills you get at lunch, and then the last thing you do before you go to sleep at night is go get a Mountain Dew, you're addicted. You know what I found out? Caffeine ages your brain. So I'm only 40 in my physical body, but I'm probably 80 in my brain because I was drinking about 18 Mountain Dews a day. And I came to my senses one day and said, you know what, I can't keep doing this. Now, fortunately for me, recovery was quick. I decided one day I wasn't going to drink Mountain Dews any longer, and I didn't. I had one day of headaches, and it was done, and I haven't drunk. I think I may have drunk one Mountain Dew since then, and that's been five or six years ago. So that, I know that sounds trivial, but I was addicted. Julie and I have been talking. I'm not so sure we're not all addicted to something. But it gets worse than that. 
my family has had mem- members of my family have had addiction that have controlled and ruined their life. My dad wrote this um, little account a couple years ago, and I want to read this to you about one member of my family. My dad wrote this. He says, I watched the small, red-headed, freckled-faced boy grow up. He attended the church I pastored and the summer youth camps I directed. As a teenager, I took him on two mission trips to Monterey, Mexico. I watched him play high school sports, basketball, and baseball. He was good. He wanted to be a coach. I even tried to get him to the Southwestern on the old 10th Street location on a baseball scholarship. He started drinking during his senior year of high school. He attended a small rural Oklahoma school. There were only eight in his graduating class that was dominated by students with nothing to do but experiment with alcohol and drugs. His, con- his drinking continued until after graduation until it led to his first car wreck. Was he driving or not? No one really knew it, or at least they wouldn't say. The results, one teenager was dead, and he was in the ICU unit at the University of Oklahoma Medical Center with a severe head trauma and a broken collarbone. collarbone. They didn't even set the brake because there was no need. They didn't think he would survive the head inju- injuries. God intervened, and slowly over a period of weeks and months, he recovered. Surely that was enough to break his alcohol addiction and dependence, but not quite. He continued to drink and experiment with drugs and began a downward spiral that took a toll on his health and his life. He became a meat cutter, a very hard work worker, but he couldn't hold a job for very long. You see, money was just a tool to get the next drink. His friends led him deeper and deeper into alcohol-dominated culture, fights, drugs, and more accidents, jail time for possession, drunken binges, a suspended driver's license, promises to quit. These were repeated time and time again. He married Debbie. I performed the ceremony. They had two children, Teresa and Jeremy. He divorced Debbie, remarried her again, and divorced her again. The alcohol and drugs were always to blame. I tried to help. I gave what I could. He became a con artist in obtaining sympathy and money. I helped him in get into at least two detox centers, including a Midwestern Teen Challenge facility. He'd dry out and return to alcohol. He became so involved in drugs that the only way to avoid prison was to become an informant for the narcs. Now his very life was in danger. That scared him away from the drugs, but not from drinking. He betrayed his friends, his mom and dad, and me over and over and over again. He took, never repaid, and drank. Finally, he betrayed the people who helped raise him, stole their checkbook, committed fraud, and spent one year in a medium security prison in Granite, Oklahoma. I visited him, visited him and listened to him as he told me how he had changed. When I'm released, no more alcohol or prison for me, he commented. He was released and drunk in three weeks. It happened over and over again. He lost his family. His son, Jeremy, who is now addicted to alcohol himself, and who now is facing 30 years in the pen for something he did while he was drunk, has nothing to do with him. He, his son, Jeremy, has now done the same thing that he did. He's now, he, he lived in a relationship that produced a baby out of wedlock. Now there's a grandson that this guy has never even seen. He fled charges on non-payment of child support, and he lived for months in Texas in a tent. That's how bad it got is he got so caught up in this cycle of addiction that he literally lived for months in the woods in Texas in a tent. He has the scars from spider bites to prove it. It just about killed him. He has cirrhosis of the liver, seizures from his car wreck injuries, high blood pressure. He's lost half of his right ear in a fight. And at 48 years old, 
At the time that my dad wrote this, he looked 68. Surely at the bottom, he would look to God and others to find release from alcohol. And though I love him and pray fervently for him, even as I write this, he is still slowly committing suicide with alcohol and his drunken vengeance. He could not quit. Dr- he could quit drugs, but he couldn't quit the drink. When he's sober, you would like him. He had a bright future in sports. He would have made a fine coach. And then my dad goes on to write this. He says, so don't tell me it's okay to social drink or it's just a social activity among friends. Don't tell me you'll be the strong one and never become drunk or addicted. Don't tell me that Christianity allows you to drink when it's a ghastly witness to those who battle every day of their lives with the demons of drink that seek to destroy them. Don't tell me that private clubs, hooters, and beer dives are different now, just harmless social gatherings. Remember, we Christians are to shun the very appearance of evil. Wake up, read the statistics with the billions of dollars that alcohol cost this state and nation each year in lost jobs, destroyed families, and devastated lives. Or read the number of alcohol-related deaths caused by the social drinker whose drunken drive, driving kills thousands each year. Don't tell me Jesus would be involved in social drink, the social drinking scene that destroys so many. Don't tell me that drinking isn't a sin because the Word of God says that the wages of sin is death. And I can personally introduce you to a living dead man He's my nephew, and his name is Rick. Rick was my hero growing up. My earliest basketball memory in life is seeing Rick take a half-court shot in a conference championship game at Broxton High School. But somewhere about 12 or 13 years old, the lights went on in my head when I saw him laying in a hospital almost dead because he had been drunk and driving and killed somebody. And I realized that he was conning everybody he knew and that he wasn't trying to. Somewhere in, the, in my mind, I suddenly recognized, you know what? I got to come to grips with this and realize I need a different hero. I talked to Danny about taking the, the camera and going to try to find Rick and see if he would tell his story on camera. And just to be honest with you, I didn't know if Rick would say anything on camera. And to be really honest with you, I didn't know if I could listen. Rick ruined his life because of the pain and the cage and the trap of addiction. No family is safe from addiction. Jesus dealt with out-of-control folks all the time. He dealt with people that were caged up, being completely out of control. You remember the account of the man they called Legion? He was out of control. He was bound. You can find the story in Mark chapter 5. It says, in Mark chapter 5, verse verse 1 through 5, it says, And they came over on the other side of the sea into the country of the Gadarenes. And when he came out of the ship, immediately they met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one could bind him, no, not with chains, because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces. Neither could any man tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that everybody that struggles with alcohol and tobacco and drugs is demon-possessed. But I will mention to you that one of the few things I remember from my Greek class in Bible college was that the word for witchcraft in Greek is pharmakia. Sound familiar? It's where we get our word pharmacy. And so I understand and I do believe that there is a spiritual connection between what happens with somebody when they're dealing with drugs and what happens in their spirit. So I understand that. But I am not saying that everybody that is addicted to something is demon-possessed. What I am saying is you need to look at the story again and see the uncontrolled status or state of this young man. Something was controlling the pace and the place and the position of his life. 
and it destroyed him. Who wants to live in a cemetery? Who wants to be bound all the time? Who wants to cut themselves all the time? So I think it, whether this guy was addicted to something in particular or not, his story, his experience is the perfect picture of addiction because he was out of control. Now, what I want to do this morning is I want to offer you some hope because I do believe that addictions can be broken. I do believe there is hope. I just have this suspicion that somebody in the room this morning is sitting here who's been dealing with the same addiction for years. Somebody, may, nobody may even know what you're dealing with. Maybe you've hit it that well. But I got hope for you this morning. Things can change. There's power available to deal with addiction. I've been listening. I want to mention a couple things to you. I've been listening to these Christian uh, counselors who've been doing some really cool studies about addicts and they're using brain imagery this really caught my attention was very interesting to me maybe you don't care but just humor me for a moment I think this is very interesting these counselors are studying brain images they're scanning people's brains that are addicted to drugs and alcohol and food things and sexual things and they're scanning their brain and you know what they discovered they discovered that when a person is addicted something interesting happens to their brain I'm no scientist, so I'll try to explain it the best I can. Two very important things happen. When they're involved in an addictive behavior, what happens is the blood or the activity flow in the prefrontal cortex, your frontal lobe, drops significantly. It begins to diminish. Interestingly enough, that frontal lobe is where we get our pause. And you say, what's that? That's what happens when you pull up in a grocery store parking lot and the armored car pulls up and you see the guards get out with those big bags of cash, and that thought, like, runs through everybody's head. We all have violent, sexual, deviant thoughts that run through our head, and so you're sitting there in your car, and you see the guy walk out with the bag of cash, and it runs through your mind, I should rob him, because if I rob him, I'll be rich. I'll be set for life. I'll never have to work again, right? If you've got a, a normal frontal lobe, what happens at that moment when that thought runs through your head? Am I the only one that have ever thought that? <laughs> All right, I got some honest folks in here. If, if you've got a, a normal frontal lobe, do you know what happens? You pause, and you think, that's crazy. If I do that... First of all, they'll probably shoot me, and if they miss and I get away with the money, there's probably an exploding device in there with die on it, and I'll be look like Barney this week, and they'll come and arrest me and put me in jail, and my life will be ruined forever. Catch that now. Addicted people don't have that pause. They just act. The second thing that happened that I thought was interesting is when that prefrontal cortex drops in activity, there's an area of the brain called the cingulate. And that cingulate, by its very name, teaches us that what it does is it locks in on one thing and becomes obsessive. It's, remember the single-track mind? Man, you're single-track, man. You're so focused on That's the cingulate kicking in. What happens in an addict is that their prefrontal cortex drops in activity, and their cingulate goes through the roof in activity, and they become obsessed. So now they don't pause. And they're obsessed with getting the food, obsessed with getting the tobacco, obsessed with looking at the internet pornography, obsessed with having uh, drugs or alcohol. And so they work together. I thought that's pretty interesting. Especially when I go back to the account in Mark. 
because the Bible says uh, all these things that happen. Here's a man that can't be changed. He's living in the cemetery. He's cutting himself. And then in Mark chapter 5, verse 15, listen to what happens. Catch it. And they come to Jesus and see him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. I came this morning to tell you that scientists have discovered three contributing factors to addiction. The first is environment. The second is biology. And the third is how a person thinks. Catch all that. I hope you're with me this morning. Because Paul comes back and he answers his own question after saying, isn't there anybody that can help? He answers his own question. In Romans chapter 7, verse 25, he says, the answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acted, he acted to set things in right in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but I'm pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. Then he comes along in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, and he says, Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I think I've come to this conclusion that Paul understood that a renewed mind has transforming power. And that Jesus can control our mind and Jesus can heal our mind and Jesus can touch our mind so that we can think right again so that the activity will adjust. See, I'm worried that what happens is a lot of us have willingly given our heart to Jesus, but we never stop to think about giving Jesus our mind. And we work diligently to make sure, and we concentrate and work hard to make sure that Jesus has our heart. But I got news for you this morning. If addiction is controlled in the brain, then Jesus having your heart might just not be enough. He might need to have our mind as well. I think we need to focus this morning on presenting God all of us. Mind. So that we think appropriately and a pause comes back into our life. And that obsessive nature that we have is brought under the blood and we think differently. The second thing I wanted to say to you this morning is this. I discovered that this, out of that account, that if Jesus experienced, experienced a bound man whose life and pace and place and position was out of control and Jesus touched him and brought it all right then the good news for you this morning is if you're addicted to Mountain Dew or you're addicted to Starbucks or you're addicted to eating or you're addicted to pornography or you're addicted to drugs or you're addicted to alcohol or to cigarettes the good news is is that Jesus can touch you and heal you he can break the cage of addiction now let me be honest with you my uncle would it be my uncle or my cousin I guess my cousin Gotta get this right. My cousin has prayed I don't know how many times. And he's hit the altar I don't know how many times. So what if this one touch thing isn't enough? Well, I discovered some other things I think that's interesting because I want to be honest with you and, and let you understand that there are occasions where you need more than just one touch. We'll talk more about that in a couple weeks. But I found this out. Teen Challenge is one of the most Effective and successful place of treatment for addicts in the world. Catch this, catch this information right here. When dealing with addicts, they have a 70% success rate. Whereas all the other treatment centers around the world have a 1 to a 
success rate. So they're doing a pretty good job. They've discovered three keys to being set free, and I want to share those with you, and then I'm going to three, add three more strategies that I think are extremely important. They say the first thing that a person needs to break an addiction is a feeling of family. The problem with that is most of the time that an addicts have destroyed their family unit and the family wants nothing to do with them. And so what Teen Challenge does is they come in and provide them another unit, a family unit. And what I am saying to you this morning is if you are battling, battling addiction, I got good news. There is an additional family unit for you. It's called this body. Ecclesiastes is very clear in chapter 4, verse 9 and 10 and 12. It says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up. But pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. And if somebody overpowers one person, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. I want you to understand something. God has placed you in this body so that it becomes a family unit for you. I just want to shake off the myth of church attendance. You just think that you just happened coincidentally to arrive today on the same day that some other folks coincidentally decided to attend worship, and so we're rubbing elbows with people that we coincidentally bumped into. That is not the picture that God has painted for us for the body. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, this is what it says. God has set the members. He has set the members. Each one of them in the body, just as he pleased, set, handpicked, pulled the strings behind the scenes, worked it all out so that you would be in this place, in this set position, so that you would have a body, a family that would love on you and help you break out of the cages of your life. It's not a coincidence that you attend here on a regular basis or that you visited. God set you here. And he does that so that we can support one another and provide love for one another and even break through hard times together. If all we do is attend church and rub elbows on a Sunday morning, we've missed the boat. That is not the picture of the body that Christ has painted for us. We are interconnected. And if you suffer, I suffer. If you're addicted, I'm addicted. And we see ourselves that way so that we can jump in and help one another. The second thing that Team Challenge found that's effective is guidance. They say you've got to have guidance. And isn't that what the Word is all about? The Word is a lamp unto my feet. That's why it is so crucial for us to hear the Word. That is why it's so important for you to be in church on Sundays so that you come and hear the Word and it provides guidance for you. But not that you just hear the Word, you do the Word. It's the whole concept of Galatians chapter 1 and verse 2. This is how we help each other. It says, brothers, if someone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself so that you may not also be tempted. In other words, we help guide one another down this path called Christianity. And you come into here and you listen to God's word and your neighbor listens to God's word. And together you live God's word out and it provides guidance for you. The third thing that Teen Challenge says is effective in drug addiction is anxiety not all anxiety is bad their concept is this is now that that you're in a community and we're in a community here now that we're in a community i am i have anxiety if i try to go back and do the things that i was doing because now i recognize that if i fall it hurts you how many of you know if you see pastor steve down in the bar on friday night you drive by and you see my truck which i can't hardly hide with the big sticker on the back of my truck but if you see me pulled up at a bar and you wait outside for four hours and I finally come stumbling out, how many of you know 
that that's going to impact you. And so there's some anxiety in my life. I can't speed. I can't cuss the attendant out at the drive-thru. I can't drink on Friday night. I wouldn't anyway, but I can't. But why, is I, why am I the only one with anxiety? That's the power of the body. What you've got to understand is we're so interconnected that it ought to cause anxiety, a good kind of anxiety where you realize if I don't live my life right and I fall into this kind of stuff again and again and again, the person I sit next to on Sunday morning is going to be impacted and devastated. You've got to have those three things. There's three more strategies I want to mention quickly and then I'm going to be done. The first one is this, be honest. How many of you recognize that the greatest kind of deception is self-deception? You know the only people you can't fix? Those that won't be honest. Oh, I don't have a problem. That's one of the cool things these counselors said about these brain images. There was a 17-year-old that came into their office. He was in trouble with the law. They brought him in, and he claimed he swore up and down, I never do drugs, ever. And he would never admit it until they took pictures of his brain. And he had damaged his brain so badly, they laid the pictures out in front of him and said, now tell us you don't do drugs. You either do drugs or you work in a furniture factory where they finish furniture and you've been smelling fumes for 40 years because your brain is damaged. Why won't we just be honest? And so in order for us to find freedom this morning, we've got to be honest with ourselves, honest with each other, and honest with God. The second strategy is this, talk to somebody. I want you to know that silence is not golden. Silence is destructive. If you've got an issue, an addictive nature, uh, something going on in your life that you can't stop and you won't tell anybody, it will destroy your life. Silence becomes a cage. And so we've got to find somebody that we can talk to and deal with and somebody we can confide in. But I want to remind you that iron sharpens iron. You need to find somebody that may have gone through what you've gone through, but they're not where you are now. Does that make sense? Like if you're addicted to Mountain Dew, I don't want to go riding in the car with you if I'm addicted to Mountain Dew because you know what's going to happen? We're going to go get a Mountain Dew. Right? But, but if I know that you battled Mountain Dew like I did and you've kicked it and I'm struggling with it and I'm like having compulsions at midnight to go get a Mountain Dew, then I can call you and say, I need you to help me keep me away from the Mountain Dew. And I know that's a crazy illustration, but the, you can follow it logically. Because some of you need to find folks who, who have battled through internet pornography and kicked it and ask them to hold you accountable. Some of you need to find some folks that are used to smoke that don't smoke anymore, and now that you're struggling with it, ask them to help you and hold you accountable. You've got to find somebody you can talk to. You've got to do it. And the third and final thing, the strategy that I would mention to you is this. Don't give up hope. Once you give up hope, you're doomed. Stay in the fight. Don't quit. There is hope. I want to tell you this morning, if Jesus can take a man who was living in the cemeteries that nobody could control and he can change that situation, then there is hope. He can change our situation. Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 says this, Christ has set us free to live a free life. So take your stand. Never again let anyone put a harness of slavery on you. So he's saying that we should have no master but Jesus. And so my question for you this morning is this. Who's your master? Because if anything that you serve is your master. 
So some of you are sitting here right now thinking, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. There's nobody in this room addicted. Really, who do you serve? I served Mountain Dew for about 15 years. Not anymore. Maybe yours is something trivial like that, or maybe it's really deep. But if you are serving them, you can't stop, then you're addicted. And what Galatians is saying is that we should never allow anybody to determine our place, our pace, or our position, but Jesus. Now, I don't know what you're facing, and I don't know what drives you to drink or drives you to eat or drives you to do the things that you do. But I do know this. Most of the folks that I know are, that are addicted to something are addicted to that because they're looking to numb themselves. I don't want to face reality. I don't want to face my home life. I don't want to face my job. And so we shock to forget. We eat to forget. We drink to forget. We do drugs to forget. Just numb me out. And so I think what we need to do is we need to institute a no-numbing policy. Jesus had the opportunity to be numb. Do you understand that in the gospel accounts that when Jesus was hanging on the cross as he was nearing the end of his life, that the Bible says that one of the soldiers or somebody went and grabbed a stick and put a sponge on it and dipped it in wine. And two accounts, one account says it was mixed with gall and the other one says it was mixed with myrrh. And if you go do research, historians believe that what the reason that was there in the first place was that as a man was entering the last hours of the excruciating death caused by crucifixion, they would give him that stuff to drink and it was a narcotic and it would numb him so he wouldn't have to endure the pain. Do you remember what happened? Jesus refused. And because he refused and because he was willing to fill our pain and deal with our issues, then we know in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it says this, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Jesus had a no-numbing policy. I know there are things in your life that you wish you didn't have to face and you wish you could numb out. But I want to tell you this morning, we've got to follow Jesus' example and refuse to numb ourselves and turn to him instead and allow him to set us free. This is a dangerous topic to talk about in church. Some of y'all looking at me like I'm crazy. But I know this. Every church I've ever been a part of, there were addicted folks attending. Where a better place to go if you're addicted, then somewhere you can get some real help. How do we do that? We love on one another. We assist one another. We talk to each other. We fight for one another. See, I know you don't wear the karate gi to church on Sunday. I'm, I guess I'm the only one brave enough to do so or crazy enough to do so. But the truth is, is we are in a fight. But we're not fighting alone. We're supposed to be fighting together. Not with one another, but with one another. You caught, you caught that, right? Because when we do that, that pro provides the platform for freedom. I want you to stand with me this morning. There's something else I learned about addiction, and that is this. Addiction carries with it a lot of shame. You hear what I said? Addiction carries with it a lot of shame. Let me just tell you this morning, you're in a safe place, and we are not in the business of embarrassing you. If you've been here any time at all, you know that we are not interested in embarrassing you. I'm not going to do it. 
but I do want to give you the opportunity to have help. So I want every head bowed, every eye closed, nobody looking around. This is between you and God. I'm asking you to be honest with yourself and with the, the holy God that has enough power to break that chain off of you in one instant. Nobody looking around. If, if you're here this morning, you say, Pastor Steve, I'm dealing with an addiction. I'm not asking for specifics. I'm not going to break it down. If you're addicted to drugs, raise your hand. If you're addicted to cigarettes, I don't want to know what you're addicted to in, in this case because it's all equal. It's an addiction. And so if you're here and you say, Pastor Steve, I'm addicted and I need help. I want to get out of this cage. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand quickly and pull it back down. Nobody's looking around. There's one. Anybody else? Yes, there's two, three, four. Anybody else brave enough, honest enough to admit? Five, yes. Anybody else? Every head bowed, every eye closed. Listen to me. I'm going to say this and then I'm going to pray. Get help. Talk to somebody. The people you're standing next to, find out who they are. Get involved in their life and allow this body to heal you. It can happen. But I'm also going to pray right now that Jesus is going to renew your mind. If you've asked Jesus into your heart already, then what I'm going to ask you to do right now is not to pray about your heart. Pray about your mind. That God will renew your mind in one moment. Father, right now, I pray for those that lifted their hands that are dealing with an addiction, something they cannot stop. They tried to stop. Maybe they prayed in times past. Maybe they've even talked to folks in times past. And they're at the place where they're wondering if there's any hope. God, this morning I pray in the name of Jesus that they would hold on and that hope would invade their spirit right now. And Father, I pray that right now you would do a renewing, a transforming work on their mind. God, I think everybody that probably raised their hand, their heart is right. And so I pray that in the name of Jesus right now, that you would renew their mind, fix their brain, go in and change the way that we think, change the way that we process. Give us our pause back where we stop and think for just a moment before we act. Allow us not to become obsessed or focused on that thing so severely that we can't stop. God, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would renew our mind. If you can help a man who was out of control, who had chains on and would break them that nobody could deal with or handle, then, Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that this would be the day of breakthrough. And as they honestly admitted before you, God, I pray that now that honesty would lead to freedom in their lives and that they would have no master but the Lord Jesus. And he would control the pace and the place and the position Father, I pray that you'd send individuals into their life right now. You've set us in a body. You handpicked us to be in relationship. So I pray that you would send people into our lives right now that would speak to us and hold us accountable and help us to break every chain off of our life and to be made new. In Jesus' name. Would you pray with this with me out loud? Dear Jesus, I give you my heart. I ask you to be the Lord. I ask you to be the Savior of my life. But I go one step further. I ask you this morning, transform my mind. Heal the way I think. 
cause there to be a pause again. Cause there to be anxiety again. Allow my conscience to kick in. And now will you pray this with me, dear Jesus? Protect my family, my immediate family, and this extended family. Help us to fight out of the cage of addiction so that you are the Lord and no one else is our master. In Jesus' name. Amen. Would you sing this this morning as we leave? And I encourage you to go free this morning. Talk to somebody and fight your way out. Don't give up hope. privilege to have you join us for this time of ministry. To find more passion resources or to make a donation online, visit www.passionchurch.tv. Remember, you can't live without passion. 